We're trying to make sure everything works up here. The, um, this coming Saturday, we have uh, two events on Saturday morning. It's 7.30. We're going to have our uh, men's prayer breakfast, and our guest speaker is going to be Dr. Ori Hampel. Ori is a, a urologist uh, here in Houston. He's uh, originally Israeli. And he will, uh, he's been in the U.S. about 25 or 30 years. And he's been a pretty outspoken critic of Obamacare. And since uh, many of us have questions about how that affects us, and some of us are either already in the Medicare area or we're going to be pushing it in the next four or five years, we have questions about that and some other things. Uh, or he's going to address a lot of things related to Obamacare educate us on a lot of the things that are going on. Uh, he told me that the only person that he knows of that's read it all the way through is Louis Gohmert, and he's read it through twice. Nobody else has had the stamina to read it through even once, but that um, uh, he's read through a lot of it. So he's been interviewed on Crossfire on CNN. He's been interviewed on a number of uh, local uh, talk shows radio talk shows, and so uh, this is going to be really educational, so be sure to invite uh, any uh, anyone you know who uh, wants to be educated in this particular area. And then we're having our uh, monthly deacons meeting following that, and then on Sunday we're having our annual congregational meeting. Isn't that right? Where'd Alan go? That's right, isn't it? I'm just looking through my... Where did my notes go? That's right, this week, February the 23rd. And then also on Sunday night, we will resume our uh, Bible study methods class at uh, six, uh, 6 o'clock. And this will be the, we have two more sessions and then we'll be done. And in a couple of weeks, on May the 10th, we start with the Chafer Seminary Conference, and we need some volunteers to help with that. And there's some sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall and you can uh, sign up for that. So th- that concludes the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in fellowship, prepared to be walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, staying in fellowship for at least the next hour so that our time in the Word has spiritual value and value for eternity. During the uh, time of silent prayer, that gives you an opportunity, if necessary, to confess your sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge your sins to God the Father And he instantly not only forgives us of the sins we mentioned, but also he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that is how we recover the ongoing uh, ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our spiritual life. So let's bow our heads together. After a few moments, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very thankful we can come before you, before your throne of grace, and bring these uh, petitions and intercessions before you. Father, we just pray 
uh, tonight for Ukraine. We pray for what's going on over there. We pray for the missionaries that we have in Ukraine, for Jim Myers, for his ministry, for all the people that work for him. And we pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe. Father, we pray also for Eager, uh, Small Yard, his family, though they're not in Kiev. Uh, we pray that you would watch over them. And as the as things develop over there, we don't know what will happen uh, coming up. We pray that you would give them opportunities to communicate the real hope of real freedom to those around them, which is Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for this church and the ministry of this body of believers, their impact here and abroad, and we pray that we might continue to be a faithful testimony of your grace in our lives as we both live our lives uh, to exemplify grace but also take advantage of opportunities to tell others about the uh, good news of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that as we study this evening that you challenge us with what we study. We may come to a better understanding of the truth of your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, and um, we're going to begin in verse 4. Tonight we're looking, thanks Greg, we're going to be looking at spiritual, wrapping up on spiritual gifts, but also looking at love, but primarily in terms of spiritual gifts, we're going to look a little more in depth on the gift of prophecy and some of the things that are going on today. We also always have to be aware of some of the acts and spasms that are going on in the contemporary uh, environment. Sometimes some of you get a little uh, bored with some of those digressions because it's not in your realm, but there are a lot of folks in this congregation physically and also who listen online who are dealing with family members who are involved in lots of strange things. And some of these family members have been squared away in the past, and some of them are confused now, and they've raised questions. You never quite realize how many things that people have questions about. And some of you may even come from some backgrounds where some of these things weren't very clear, so it's important to clarify what the Word of God teaches on these things. But just pick up the context a little bit. In verse, Starting in verse 3, Paul begins to develop, and I think this is the, what he develops in the remaining chapters of Romans, develops what he means in the first two verses, first of all in terms of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. In terms of what we're studying in Matthew, that basically means to be a genuine disciple or learner or student of Jesus who's pursuing spiritual maturity through the study of God's word. In contrast uh, to presenting ourselves as a uh, living sacrifice, we're not to be conformed to the world. We're not to be pressed into the uh, zeitgeist of the, of the uh, culture around us. We're not to think like the people around us. We're to think and act differently. Thinking should always precede action. So we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, so that our lives demonstrate as evidence the, that God's will is acceptable and perfect and complete, sufficient. Then he develops ideas in verses 3 through 8 related to the body of Christ 
and the fact that we have all been given spiritual gifts. And over the last several lessons, I have gone through a basic introduction and summary of what the New Testament teaches on uh, spiritual gifts. And summary, verses 4 and 5, talks about the fact that, that the body of Christ is, uh, is an organism. It is made up of every believer in Christ from the uh, first day of the church in the, on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 until it is completed when Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. All are members of the body of Christ, and all the members don't have the same function. We're not identical. Each person is, as the psalmist says, um, wonderfully made. We are created uniquely, and God has gifted us uniquely. And I talked about this a little last week. We need to exploit the gifts that God has given us because each person has a role in the team. And I believe in the microcosm of the local church, all of the gifts are going to be present if you have a group of more than a couple of dozen believers. All the gifts will be present, and whether they are or not, everybody needs to function in all of these areas. And it's important to do that, but not through the sort of contemporary approach to taking various uh, spiritual gift tests to try to identify your spiritual gift, but just to seek to serve the body of Christ in whatever way it needs and whatever way you can serve it, but primarily focusing on spiritual growth and pursuing spiritual maturity. And as we grow and as we pursue opportunities to serve in the local body, then we will uh, eventually maximize our efforts in the arena of where we're most effective, which will turn out to be where we are gifted. So there's a unity in the body, but there are differences in terms of how we are gifted and how we function within the body. In verse 5, Paul says, We being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now that last phrase just runs counter to American thinking. American thinking and American exceptionalism is built on the concept of rugged individualism. And in rugged individualism, we don't always make good team players. And that runs counter to what the Bible says here. We're members of one another. That means there's an interdependency within the body of Christ. We're not lone rangers. We don't go out and just operate on our own, and we can't do that. Every, every ministry is dependent upon a vast number of people who usually work in the background in various uh, volunteer capacities, taking care of all the different logistical functions that must be taken care of, or a ministry just can't operate. It just can't go forward. I have recently been reading the third book in the trilogy called the, the Liberation Trilogy by the authors Rick Atkinson, who has written this trilogy on the war in Europe, and it's exceptionally well written. It is just great fun to read it. He has great vocabulary, and I've had to look up a word or two on about every two or three pages, and it's not like I have a small vocabulary either, so he's quite challenging in some areas, and it's a lot of fun to read. But he he differs in his approach to tell, talking about the war, in that, uh, in, in that rather than focusing on the personalities where it's sort of a biographical account dealing with the different generals 
or dealing with the overall strategy of the war and the tactics on the battlefield. He deals a lot with the, the, the everyday nuts and bolts of every operation, and he spends a lot of time talking about all of the things that needed to be accomplished logistically uh, just to engage in a, in a battle. And it has really impressed me that that we, we could have probably made it into Berlin maybe six months earlier, but we didn't have gas and we didn't have uh, oil and we didn't have food and we didn't have all kinds of things, bullets and uh, grenades and grenade launchers and all kinds of things that needed to be pushed up to the up to the front and the the role of transportation, the role of all the the, the quartermaster units and everything else, it just blows my mind how much was involved logistically in bringing about the end of the end of the war. Now I was given the third volume for Christmas, so I started off just before D-Day, but I think I know the rest of the story, so I can do that. Uh, but I, I really encourage you to. And the body of Christ is, is like that. Uh, often we look at the 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 key figures, the names, the writers, the pastors, the big names. But behind, just as you say in, 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 in the military, behind every combat unit, there's hundreds and not thousands of people behind every single soldier on the front line allowing him to do what he's doing. The same thing is true for every pastor and for every church. There's thousands of people who make that happen, and they're, they're unsung. And I believe that many of them are going to be much, much closer to the throne of God when we get to heaven, and they're going to have more rewards at the judgment seat of Christ than the people we see on the front lines usually uh, uh, today. But that's part of the whole operation of the body of Christ, and everybody needs to be encouraged to be a part of that. We are members of one another. We are interdependent. Now then verse 6 says, having then gifts. Now it's interesting when you get into looking at the grammar here, it starts with a present participle, but it is a fresh sentence. It's not dependent upon the previous sentence. And so there's a lot of discussion as to exactly how this should be understood. And I think that it probably should be understood as a causative adverbial participle, starting off with the idea since or because uh, we have gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. That's the general command in that sentence, let us use them, that governs the next several, uh, several verses. We are to uh, use these gifts, and the first gift that he begins to talk about is prophecy, and he's going to work through a list of several gifts here in Romans chapter, chapter 12. It's not as an extensive a list as in some of the other passages, and he's going to describe how these gifts should function. So a couple of lessons back, I developed this chart uh, for comparison purposes of what I think are the four major passages, the four passages that list gifts. Now, I've broken the 1 Corinthians 12 list into two separate lists because they are distinct. One is given in verses 8 through 11 early in the Earlier in the chapter, and the other is given later in the chapter, starting in verse 28. Uh, Ephesians 4 gives the four uh, foundational gifts for equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, the purpose for those gifts 
is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Now, the word there for ministry is the same word from which we get our English word deacon, diaconia. And if you look over to the fourth column in our list in Romans 12, this is the same word that's translated service as a spiritual gift. So it is the role of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to train and equip all the saints to function in the realm of ministry. So the term diakonia has a broad general sense just related to service within the body of Christ, and that can cover just about any uh, function within the body of Christ. Now, apostles and prophets are mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 12:28, and the gift of prophecy is mentioned in Romans 12 as well. That's the first gift that's mentioned. The gifts that are highlighted in blue in the chart are temporary gifts. There are different designations you'll run across in talking about uh, the the temporary gifts. Some refer to them as sign gifts. Some people refer to them as uh, as miraculous gifts. But the best term is temporary gifts because some were not revelatory, some were not sign gifts, but they're they are designated, as the Scripture says, as we studied in the last two lessons, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, they are designated as temporary gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, it consists exclusively of temporary gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 mentions apostles, prophets, healings, miracles, and tongues, as which are temporary gifts and then talks about administrations, or in some tra- some translations translate that as leadership, or helps, uh, which is the term uh, antilumpsis, which means simply to assist or help someone. In our passage, in the uh, far right column, Romans 12, prophecy is the first one mentioned, then teaching is mentioned, uh, leadership in the sense of management, it's a different word than the one used in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Service, a different, similar to helps, but a different word is used in Romans 12. Mercy, exhortation, and giving. Since prophecy is the first one that's mentioned, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, this gift. I talked about it before, that... <coughs> Within the context of the modern charismatic movement, of course, the thinking was that all of the gifts were permanent. And the idea that began to be generated in the late 19th century was that if we just acted like the first century church, then everything would be wonderful. You often run into this sort of utopic idealism among certain Christians that if we were just like the early church, well, the early church, pardon me, was a little bit ignorant They didn't have a lot of vocabulary we have. They didn't have words like Trinity. That wasn't coined until the middle of the second century. They didn't have, they weren't talking about dispensations the way we do. They they weren't talking, they were confused about prophecy. They were confused about a lot of things. They weren't even that clear on, on salvation. Once you drop off the cliff with the death of the last apostle, the doctrine of salvation gets incredibly murky. In fact, if you read through a lot of the early church fathers between about 100 to 300, most of them think you have to be baptized by water uh, 
in order to be saved. And and they're very confused about that. And some of them even think that physical bat- water baptism literally washes away sin. This is why in the beginning of the 4th century, uh, after the Emperor Constantine became saved, he would not get baptized until he was pretty close to death because he, he, it, baptism took care of all your sins up to that point. And afterwards, they didn't quite know what to do with those sins that came after baptism. You know, post-salvation sins have been a problem for, for Christians ever since the early church. So that was just one manifestation of it. So there was a certain amount of confusion. It wasn't an ideal period. There were conflicts, there were difficulties, there were problems. And I guess that's just because we're all sinners and consequently we have problems and we don't understand things. And there were there was a lack of clarity even in the early church. I, in terms of understanding the word of God, I would much rather live today than in the early church. But in the early church, in the first century, under the period of the apostles and prophets, you were also dependent on extra-biblical revelation because there wasn't a closed canon. There wasn't a sufficient revelation yet. It wasn't until God had completed giving all of the information in the uh, New Testament through the Pauline and Petrine Johannine epistles that people in the New Testament church really understood this unique spiritual life that we have. In fact, as I pointed out previously, the first epistle is probably not written until around 47 or 48, which is about 14 or 15 years after the death of Christ. And then it's not until the, the, the 50s that you get most of Paul's epistles and a few into the 60s. The Johannine epistles are written quite late. Revelation's written quite late. Uh, the Petrine epistles are written before the fall of Rome, probably in the 60s. So we just don't know. Uh, we, we recognize that they lacked a lot of information, and so they were dependent upon people in the local church who had the biblical gift of prophecy who could give guidance and direction. The, those who were prophets were a much larger group than those who were apostles. We studied the doctrine of apostleship before, and to be an apostle, you had to have been directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you had to be a witness of his resurrection. That limited it. There are some people who are called apostles in the New Testament who were not part of the original 11 plus the Apostle Paul. They were, uh, they were apostles in a derivative sense. An apostle is someone who has been commissioned to a particular task or mission. So you have to determine who commissioned them and what was the task. Jesus Christ only commissioned a limited number. Local churches commissioned Barnabas and Junius and four or five others, and they were sent out from local churches to uh, take the gospel to other places in terms of, of a missionary activity. So they're apostles in a lowercase a sense, not the gift of apostle. But you also had, but you had prophets, and there were many more. We, in our study of Acts, we've looked at Agabus, and we've looked at the fact that, that Philip's daughters uh, prophesied, and we've looked at some of the issues related to, to uh, the gift of prophecy. And it's possible that, that when you look at the authorship of the New Testament, that several of the New Testament authors were those who had the gift of prophecy, 
Because remember, according to Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. But not all of the writers of the New Testament were apostles. Mark was not an apostle. He was the amanuensis for Peter and wrote his gospel under the uh, guidance and authorization of Peter. But it's very possible Mark could have had the gift of, of apostles. I mean, a prophecy. Same with Luke. Luke was arguably a Gentile who uh, was uh, not a not Jewish background. If so, he was the only Gentile who wrote uh, a New Testament book. He was not an apostle. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. It's possible he had the gift of prophecy. Same with um, a James, who writes the epistle to James. James is the Half, the half-brother of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, but James was not an apostle. That's not James, the brother of John. That's James, the half-brother of the humanity of Jesus. And same with Jude. Jude is the half, also a half-brother, full brother to James. Uh, they were not, they weren't even saved until after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to them. Uh, so they're not, they're not apostles. But they wrote under the authority of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is very likely that they functioned in terms of the gift of prophecy, and they had uh, authorization through their association with the apostles. But that's, that's what gave credence and authority to their particular, their particular writings. So nowadays, if we fast forward up to the 20th century when we get the modern charismatic movement, they want to resurrect these these temporary gifts. We have people I've mentioned before, Wayne Grudem, who used to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, wrote his uh, Ph.D. dissertation on the New Testament gift of prophecy. Now he's the president of Phoenix Seminary. He is in, involved with the Vineyard Association of Churches, which is part of what's called the third wave of the Holy Spirit, uh, started back under uh, John Wimber in the 70s. And he thinks that prophecy... I've gone through this before. I'll just hit the top couple of quotes. He says, Prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture and authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. He goes on to say, New Testament prophecy is telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. And you will run into Christians who've been influenced by this kind of thinking, and they will talk about very loosely, God spoke to me. These are, these are elements of, of mysticism. It may be a soft form of mysticism, but it's still mysticism. God has quit speaking today. He stopped speaking at the end of the first century. And there is no more direct revelation. Uh, the canon is closed. That's what we mean by the closing of the canon. Whether God revealed something to Paul and he wrote it down, or he revealed it to Agabus and he didn't write it down, it still was breathed out by God, Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, and therefore it still has the authority of having come and originated from God and is equally authoritative and equally infallible. Now, what happens in the modern sense with people like Grudem and others is that they come along and say, well, the New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy, and as a result, uh, they are minimizing and diluting what's going on in the local church. And it's a real uh, source of error, because people think that these so-called New Testament prophets today 
are giving out uh, accurate information. There was a group in Kansas City that was a spinoff from the Vineyard Movement, and uh, they were called the Kansas City Prophets. One of their leaders was a guy named Mike Bickle, who has gone on to head up an organization called IHOP, the International House of Prayer. And so, and they they tend to bleed over into and associate a lot with uh, with uh, post mills and reconstructionists. And a few years ago, if you remember, there was a lot of controversy about the fact that they were they were having a statewide prayer meeting here over at Reliant Stadium, and uh, that a lot of the people that influenced Governor Perry in that were associated with Mike Bickle's group and some of these other other groups. And it's because they've given rise to all of these really confusing ideas related to prophecy. So a lot of times um, the, these ideas filter out into real-time uh, contemporary events and, and, and shape them. And so that's, that's one of the reasons we need to study this. Um, Grudem says, much more commonly, Prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority. Now, where does he get that? Where in the Bible does it ever shift the definition of prophecy from what it was in the Old Testament? It's a word just like the kingdom of God that shows up at the very beginning of the New Testament, and there's no redefinition of the term. Anybody who would read it or hear of it would normally think of the Old Testament Criterion is the framework for understanding the gift of prophecy. So he claims they don't have divine authority, but they're simply reporting something God laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. There are many indications in the New Testament that this ordinary gift of prophecy had authority less than that of the Bible. Of course, his examples don't really support that, so he just makes that contention. On the other hand, you have people like Bob Thomas, who spoke here several years ago on hermeneutics, at the Chafer uh, Conference, and he says that prophecy was speech which is inspired by the Spirit and therefore totally true and authoritative. It doesn't change its meaning from the Old Testament to the New. Richard Gaffin, who teaches at Westminster Seminary, makes the statement that prophecy is not the interpretation of an already existing inspired text. See, that addresses the problem that many of you have heard it's very popular in some Baptist circles that prophecy is preaching. Prophecy is not preaching. I've heard a lot of people say that. Prophecy is prophecy. It is being a channel of direct revelation from God to your audience, and that's different from preaching. That's what he means when he says the interpretation of an already existing inspired text. That's preaching. So he's saying prophecy is not preaching or oral tradition, but is itself the inspired non-derivative. Now, what that means is that, that it's not coming from the Word of God. It is fresh revelation from God. So that's how we should understand biblical prophecy. So as I pointed out before, the New Testament gift of prophecy is not redefined in the New Testament. New Testament prophets were seen as equal in divine authority as New Testament uh, apostles, Ephesians 2.20. Early church writings from the late first century, I'm talking about 60, 65, 70, uh, into the early second century, because there's a transition period there, they understood the New Testament gift of prophecy to be identical with the Old Testament prophecy and still applied the same tests of 
of, of authentic, authentication uh, to New Testament prophetic claims. And we believe New Testament prophecy died out with the closing of the canon. Now, critical to understanding prophecy is the test for prophecy given in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5 and Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 22. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13 uh, to begin. Deuteronomy chapter 13 to begin and just covering a few of the important uh, principles laid down here in Deuteronomy 13. First of all, if you look at Deuteronomy 13.1, and I don't have slides for this, so you actually have to, I'm forcing you to go look at your Bible. Don't just look at the screen. You should be making notes. You know, you should have a note in the top margin of your uh, of Deuteronomy 13. You should have test for profit. That way you can find it the next time the topic comes up. And you should also write in the margin Deuteronomy 18. Uh, 9 to 22, so the next time you look at Deuteronomy 13, you'll see that you're supposed to go look at Deuteronomy 18 as well. He starts off, Moses starts off saying, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Now notice he doesn't act as if this isn't going to happen. He doesn't say, if there arises among you a pseudo-prophet or a pseudo-dreamer. He doesn't qualify anything. He, he recognizes that somebody's going to come up with some sort of legitimate revelatory background. Legitimate not in the sense that it comes from God, but he's not, not someone who's just making it up out of whole cloth either. He says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, he doesn't say he's a huckster. Now, a lot of what we see today uh, in contemporary healing events are are just fraudulent. They're just uh, all all kinds of things that that go on uh, that are just totally, totally bogus. But he's assuming, for the sake of argument, that there's some sort of revelation. He's not identifying it as revelation from God, but some sort of revelation from Satan or demon or something and that he has the ability to perform a miracle. We would call it a pseudo-miracle because it's not from God, but he's not denying that that something miraculous occurs. This is the kind of thing that will happen in the uh, the tribulation period under the authority of the false prophet. There will be true miracles that take place, but the origin of that power doesn't come from God. So there's a real healing or a real miracle that takes place. And he says in verse 2, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. See, he's not questioning at all the legitimacy of what happens. That's what we would do. Say, well, that really didn't happen. So he's assuming, yeah, it did happen. Don't question the experience. We have to go back to two basic principles in life. Are you going to evaluate your experience from the Word of God? Are you going to evaluate the Word of God on the basis of your experience? Now, if you're evaluating it on the basis of experience, or you talk to people who are evaluating it on the on on the basis of their experience, for example, we have some of these uh, books that are talking. Is heaven real? Is one of them? There's a story of a three-year uh, a boy who, was, when he was three years old, he was, had appendicitis and he went under surgery. And while he was under surgery, he saw a lot of things. And we can't explain how he came to know some of the things he came to know. 
We can't explain that, but, but see, what most people would start is they would challenge his experience. You can't challenge somebody's experience. You can't, if somebody says, well, uh, this happened to me, great, fine. I'm not going to say it didn't happen to you. I'm going to say you, maybe you didn't interpret it correctly, but I'm not going to say you didn't have an experience. You can't challenge a person's, uh, a person's experience. I remember uh, a lady, uh, a mother, a lady in my church in, in uh, Irving about 30 years ago, and uh, she had gone to a faith healing thing the night before she was supposed to have uh, uh, operation on, on cancer, major surgery on stomach cancer. And when she went in, she felt some sort of power from the, the faith healer. And the next day she went in, and they could find no no evidence of the cancer. Now, I can't explain that, but I don't have to. The Word of God doesn't, doesn't tell me I have to be able to explain. There are a lot of things in this life. I don't know enough information. That's what she... You know, it's just like in marriage counseling. People come in, they tell you what's going on in their in their marriage, but but that's their that's just their rather limited view and interpretation of what's going on. They don't even have enough information to know what's actually going on between them and their spouse. You, you just you, somebody comes in and says, "I had this experience." You get their interpretation of something that happened, and you get less than one tenth of one percent of the facts. And it's sometimes impossible to get the rest of the facts because we do live in the devil's world and we're in invisible warfare. And there are a lot of things that are going on we're unaware of. So I don't have to explain how certain things happen or what's going on. I just know what God told me and what God told me is sufficient. And therefore, whatever you think happened, your interpretation's wrong because it's contrary to the word of God. And that's all I need to know. So here's a case in point where there's somebody who, who performs a miracle. He claims to be a prophet, claims to be a dreamer of dreams, and he claims a sign and wonder, and it actually comes to pass. But the issue isn't his experience. The issue isn't his claim. The issue is what does he teach? It's the content of his message that determines whether he's from God or not, not whether or not he performs a miracle. And see, today we have people who say, oh, they performed a miracle. They must be right. Don't get distracted by the miracle. Don't get distracted by the claim of a sign or a wonder. Don't get distracted by the experience. Focus on the word of God. And this is what Moses says. He says, this person comes along and they, they perform this miracle and say, let us go after other gods, which you have not known. See, the message is false. That's how you know they're a false prophet, not because the miracle was screwy, but because the message is screwy. It's the content that matters. They say, let us go after other gods, which is a direct contradiction to the word of God. See, you have to judge the word of God. You have to judge your experience by the word of God, not judge the word of God by your experience. So the message is, let us go after other gods which you've not known, and let us serve them. The command comes in verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, God's going to test you by having somebody come into your life that performs, I mean, that you can evaluate it. It's a real healing. It's a real miracle. They really did something. 
God allowed that to happen to test you. Are you going to put the word of God first or are you going to put experience first? So God says, God, so Moses says, God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Are you going to put the word of God over experience? And then comes the command in verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. So that's a harsh penalty. It's, it's a capital crime to claim to be speaking for God when you're not. Now, there's nothing that seems to change that in the New Testament, that, that prophecy is the voice, is, is where the prophet is the channel for direct revelation from God and is the most serious claim you can make because if you're wrong, it would invoke the death penalty. Now, in the New Testament, you're not under the Mosaic law, but the principle of the seriousness of the, of the claim to be a spokesman for God continues to be the same. So, that's chapter 13. Now we go to the second passage that gives us a test for genuine prophecy, and that starts in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. So just turn over a few pages. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. And in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, the broad context is that God is giving regulations, Moses is giving regulations, for the leadership, regulations related to the kings, regulations related to the priests and the Levites, and regulations related to uh, prophets. Verse 9, he says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Don't, get fa- don't fall into the trap of the false prophets and the false prophecies of the, na- the religions around you. Therefore... Or there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or who practices witchcraft. See, these are all aspects of demonism. Witchcraft or being a soothsayer, somebody claims to foretell the future, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium, someone who calls up the dead, or a spiritist, one who calls up the dead. Uh, those three are roughly synonymous. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. So he's listing aspects related to some sort of revelation into uh, the future, into the dead that doesn't come from God. So then we come to verse 15. Now, when we look at 15 to 22, we have to recognize that there are two, two divisions here, 15 through 19 and 20 through 22. In 15 through 19, we're talking about one of the greatest uh, uh, prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is talking, so this is a prophet like Moses. From your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear, him you shall listen to. So 15 through 19 is going to be talking about the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy. Now, there are some people who deny that. You may have a study Bible. It may not identify this as such. But this is a messianic prophecy. We know this, first of all, because the wider context that I talked about fits best with Deuteronomy 18:15 to 19, referring to the Messiah, because he's the head of all offices and authorities in the surrounding passages. 
He's the head over kings, the priests, and the prophets. Secondly, the immediate context, which I just read to you, starting back in verse 9, 9 through 14, talks about uh, the negatives or rejecting pagan divination, and that contrasts with the Messiah, who's going to be the perfect and complete revelation of God. And third, the discussion of false prophets in 1820-22 to 22 is consistent with an individual prophet in verses 15 through 19. Now, this is important to understand. In 15 through 19, he talks about a prophet. The, the word prophet, uh, Navi, is without the definite article. So he's talking, in, and, and in the way he's describing this, he's describing an individual. If the Lord your God raise up for you a prophet like me, now, when you get into 20 to 22, he's talking about general principles relating to the prophets. Okay, so the definite article is used in 20 to 22 in terms of stating gnomic principles related to discernment of who's a prophet. So in verses 15 to 19, we're talking about a specific individual prophet using the singular, uh, using the singular noun. So this is consistent. Uh, part of it is because we see this in terms of a general contrast that occurs with the beginning of verse 20. The Hebrew word that's translated but in the New King James is the Hebrew word ach, which indicates a more of a soft contrast, however. So it is contrasting uh, these prophets who presume... Uh, or had the arrogance to speak a word in my name with the true prophet, the individual prophet mentioned in verses 15 through 19. Um, the, the noun that you use, the singular noun in 15 to 19, is a singular noun defined as a specific individual, defined as one who is like Moses. When you get over into verse 20 to 22, when it includes the article, it's the generic use of the article indicating anyone in this class who claims to be a prophet. So that just gives you a little bit of an of a understanding of the framework here. Very important passage in terms of understanding its exegesis. Um, a young woman who graduated from Trinity Seminary wrote her Ph.D. dissertation on this as a messianic prophecy did a fabulous job on this. She pointed out about six things that are important to understand is that the singular of Navi here points to a specific individual. It's amazing how many so-called exegetes overlook that. They want to say it's a, because it's singular, it's a collective noun, but when a collective noun is intended, there's usually followed in the context with a mix of singular and plural pronouns. That doesn't occur here. All you have is singular pronouns. So grammatically, it points to a single individual. Second thing that you get from the context is the prophet is compared to a single exalted individual, Moses. So to there's a comparison of kind to kind or apples to apples, which means an, uh, since he's comparing to an individual, the, the prophet here must be an individual as well, comparing the individual future prophet to the individual Moses. Third, in the history of the Old Testament period, no ordinary prophet exercised all the authority that Moses did. Moses had legislative authority, executive authority, priestly authority, and mediatorial authority. 
And no other prophet in the Old Testament had that degree of of, uh, authority. For the prophet who's like Moses is so unique that only the Messiah could fulfill those qualifications. Numbers 12, 6 through 8, after, after Moses had organized the elders and God said that he would speak to them and he would speak uh, to Moses, I mean to Miriam and to Aaron, God then in, in Numbers 12, 6 through 8 said, but I don't speak to them mouth to mouth like I speak to you, Moses. Moses had a unique relationship to God, and the revelation he received from God was unique from everyone else because of his intimacy with God. In Deuteronomy 34.10, at the conclusion of Deuteronomy, which is the last chapter is written after Moses died, so the last chapter is not written by Moses. The last chapter is written by whoever the final editor of Deuteronomy is. And he writes at the end that to, to the time that he wrote, which was probably close to the exile, to that time, no prophet like Moses had arisen. That means it's not Joshua. That means it's not Nathan. It's not Gad. It's not Isaiah. It's not Jeremiah. This, this unique prophet had not yet come by the time of the exile. So this is a messianic prophecy in verses 15 through 19. And Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. So that means he's going to be Jewish. Him you shall listen to according to all you desire, all you desire to the Lord your God in Horeb. That's another word from Mount Sinai. In the day of the assembly. So going back to the day that they received the law from God in Mount Horeb. And they said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Remember, at Mount Horeb, when God began to speak to them, they all cowered. They were afraid. The very voice of God scared them to death, and they just fell on their face. And they said, no, 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 Moses, you go up there and talk to God. We can't stand to hear his voice. It's, it's too much. That's what he was reminding them of. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. That is, the Lord said, you come, Moses, go ahead and go, come up. Go ahead and come up because that's good. And then God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. So this is the second time we have this prophecy stated in this passage. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. That goes back to the passage in Numbers 12, 6 through 8, God speaking mouth to mouth with Moses. I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. There will be judgment on those who reject him. And then we have the contrast in verse 20. But in contrast to him, or however, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name. The Hebrew there means to presume arrogantly, to <clears throat> uh, reject authority. Um, who, speak, who presumes to speak a word in my name claims God spoke to me. How many times have I heard people say that? Well, God spoke to me. That's presumption. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Once again, it's a death penalty. So this applies to anyone who claims to be a prophet, anyone who claims to speak, that person shall die. And then we have a validation. Verse 21, if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not, which the Lord has not spoken? Well, how do we evaluate this? So anybody can come along and say, God said to me, how do we know that God didn't speak to them? 
Well, that's verse 22. When, and in your New King James at least, it has the indefinite article, but it has a definite article in the Hebrew. When the prophet, and that indicates this specific prophet, the prophet who's making a claim, when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, so there's all, all, even though there were many prophets who gave long-term prophecies that wouldn't be fulfilled in their lifetime, they all gave numerous short-term prophecies that would validate that they were uh, genuine prophets and that you could test them that these things came to pass. So when the prophet says that something's going to come to pass, if it doesn't, then that's the thing the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So that's the criteria. That goes directly against Grudem's assertion that, that the New Testament prophet isn't speaking with the authority of God. He can make mistakes. He's going to misidentify things. And that's okay, because he's a New Testament prophet. They just don't have God with them, really. You know, that, that just destroys the authority of God's word, because these people are saying, God told me. Either God told you or he didn't. So the punishment is death. Verse 22, that prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He's not speaking for me. So this gives us the primary test for being a, a prophet. Now, the other thing that comes along that gives us a connection with the Old Testament, turn with me as we head back into our passage in Romans. We're just going to stop briefly in Joel. Joel chapter 2. If I can find it. I had it a minute ago. Mm -hmm. There we go. Joel. Joel's quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, Joel is predicting what will take place on the day of the Lord. It shall come to pass afterward, that's after the tribulation period, after Daniel's 70th week. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Now, that's not the spiritual gift of prophecy that we have in the church because there was a Gift of prophecy in the Old Testament under Israel. There will be a gift of prophecy in the tribulation because we're back in the age of Israel, but it's not the spiritual gift of prophecy, which is designed as something unique for the church, the body of Christ. But there's a contention here that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The meaning of prophecy here is the same as it's been all through the Old Testament. So when Peter quotes it, that's the first time we see it, mentioned in Acts, when Peter quotes it in Acts 2, he doesn't change the meaning of the word prophecy. Prophecy is the same in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. That's the only point I'm making there, is the way the word is used from the very beginning of its usage in Acts 2, it means exactly, it comes out of an Old Testament quote, and it means the same thing it meant under the Old Testament. It means divinely given revelation mediated through a prophet that's not based on an interpretation of an already given revelation or the word of God. Okay, that brings us up to a conclusion on just that first verse in Romans 
uh, 12 re- related to prophecy, that those who prophesy in proportion to our faith, what that means is in accordance to the standard of faith, in accordance to the standard of doctrine. So prophecy has a check, even in the Old Testament. You see, that's what we saw in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, and in Deuteronomy 13. Whatever the prophet said had to conform and could not contradict already accepted divine revelation. So there was a a standard, and that was the the prophet couldn't come along and just say anything, and you just took it for granted. You had to evaluate it on the basis of previously accepted truth. And that's the same thing that Paul says here is that if you prophesy, it's in proportion or according to the standard of faith. And then he's going to go into other spiritual gifts, which we'll look at next time related to ministry, teaching, exhorting, giving. And then we'll get into the next section that talks about the the foundation for utilizing everything in the spiritual gift, which is love. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. We pray that you might uh, help us to understand these uh, foundational biblical principles so that we may not get sucked into either uh, looking into ourselves for some sort of inner light to determine truth, looking at experience to determine truth, but that we're looking at your word of God, your word, that, that it's your word that judges and evaluates our experience, and we are to interpret our experience in the light of your word and not interpret your word in the light of our experience. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.